it's not just about a loss of a child. It's about grief. It's about becoming undone and unraveled in a state of shock and trying to regather yourself. And I think that is actually the process, hopefully, for everyone. Welcome to Book Me, sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Today, author Sherry Fitch. There are terrible possibilities which every parent thinks about, but can't bear to meditate on for too long. In March of 2018, one of those terrible possibilities became a reality for writer Sherry Fitch. She's brought joy and inspiration to a multi-generational readership, and she learned that day that one of her two adult sons, Dustin, had died. Sherry would be the first to admit that she wears her heart on her sleeve. Her latest book, You Won't Always Be This Sad, exposes a broken heart with candor, ferocity, and poetry. It also describes the personal paths she's explored to mend the break. Sherry, welcome to Book Me. Thank you for having me. Can you take us back to that Friday afternoon in spring when you just finished some work, you mm-hmm. met a deadline, and the sun was shining near your house on River John, Nova Scotia? I was expecting a phone call from a friend, and we were going to talk about all kinds of wonderful things. And the phone rang, and it was that number. And so I picked it up going, Hi! And what she had to tell me instead of the conversation we were going to have was that, uh, and she could barely get it out, was that she had heard that uh, Dustin had died. And it's weird. She was halfway across the country, but she had heard before I'd even heard. So, yeah, I still, it's, it's odd, but I'm so grateful it was her on the other end. You know, so, yeah, I, I, and, and the world changed. I mean, it exploded. I shattered, as anybody would who receives news that somebody they loved had died, whether it was a child or whether it was a husband or anybody, yeah. Your son foreshadowed his death to you. Mm-hmm. What did he say? It was in January. He'd been living with us for about five months, I guess it was, and uh, he needed a space. He was trying to get better. And we said, sure, come. That had happened before in the past, and whenever he was trying to get healthy, we always liked to create a space for him. And this was a really good kind of five-month journey he'd been on. But one day he was getting ready to go outside, and just out of the blue, I was sitting on the couch, and he was getting putting his boots on, and he's like, you know, Mom, you know, don't you? Uh, I'm going to die before you. And I was like, what? Don't say that. Don't say that. And he's like, no, no, Mom, I'd never do that. I would never do that to you. But, you know, Mom, I've done a lot of damage to my body. You're going to bury me. And that was in January, and he died in March. And he hadn't been sick. And, I, you know, I just said, don't say that. And I left the room. And But I, I go back to that because I think I wonder if there was a knowingness. I wonder if there's a knowingness in people um, that does foreshadow their death. And I was dealing with a lot of weird feelings, too, at the time. Like I was going for walks and walking and thinking, what's this feeling? What's this feeling? And now looking back, I think it was what we call foreboding, that I had never experienced it before. And I was like, why am I? Like, what is this? And then after everything unfolded, I thought that was what that feeling was. So did he have a knowingness? Did I have a sense of foreboding? Yes, I think that that actually happened. You say that Dustin was getting healthy mm-hmm. in that period. Tell us more about him. He was in his late 30s. He was in his late 30s. I mean, Dustin was diagnosed at six. I mean, say diagnosed. Back then, they didn't they had all kinds of labels and things, but we didn't have actually the labels and diagnostic tools that we have now. 
before Dustin started school, he had one of those tests that said, you know, um, you know, put the stick man, uh, the fingers on the stick man. And, that, right. and of course, I got a call right away saying, oh, yeah, your son is, you know, there's something wrong with his brain. You know, he's not really ready to go. He didn't put the arms on the stick man. And so that this is an indication that he's got severe neurodevelopmental delays. And then it, later it was dyslexia. And then it was this and then it was that. I mean, who knows um, what those labels mean? All I knew is that somebody was telling me that my son was not okay and that he was going to struggle and they were right. He struggled his whole life in school, learning disabilities, all that stuff. By the time he was 12, he was definitely depressed, suicidal. Um, I remember taking him to a doctor when he was 11 and having the doctor saying, you know, there's something wrong. He's coming home from school. He was before he'd never taken drugs or anything like that then. I said, and he's, he comes home from school and he lies on the couch and he's got dark circles under his eyes and he, he can't get up. And I said, I, you know, I think he's depressed. And the doctor said, oh, he's a teenager. He's just starting puberty. You know, go home and write about it. I'll never forget that. Because I was the mother and I knew. I knew there was something wrong with my son. But back then they didn't even have really childhood depression was just starting to become a thing they were acknowledging, right? So, um, and then after that, it was, you know, a long path of a lot of anxiety, depression, then drug addiction. And then eventually he did go on methadone and he did have years of sobriety. He did relapses sometimes, but the methadone seemed to be working, but then he wanted to come off the methadone. And I think it was coming off the methadone. He was trying to do it the way the doctor said, but he was trying to do it maybe too fast. You write about the the transition from being the mother of toddlers mm -hmm. who took care of everything That's for right. these two boys to becoming the mother of adults uh, who feels helpless as a child. I mean, you come full circle in a way. Is this one of those feelings that parents can't prepare themselves for until they're in it? I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. And I think at some level, every parent goes through that. You know, you have your 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 children under in your arms protected. You think even if there's a problem, you can solve it. You can kiss that boo-boo. And then all of a sudden, there is that day for every parent that realizes, yeah, it's their life. They have to go live it. And there's going to be a lot of things that you're not going to be able to fix and make better. And whether that's the first heartbreak when your child comes home and they've had their first crush and their first boyfriend and they have their first relationship breakup and you see them crying at the kitchen table and you can't make that better, um, that that could be the moment. I remember with Jordan, it was when he was in grade six and he came in the door and said, you told me that the world was a really good place and, you know, things were fair, but it's not like that. And I'm like, oh, no, what have I done? I've lied. It was and, you know, that broke my heart. It's like all of a sudden he was figuring out, you know, Mom, you're telling me the way the world you want it to be, but it's not the way the world really is. And all of a sudden you realize, you know, your kids are going to come to realize the world is beautiful, but it's also sad and, and you cannot fix things for them. And when you have a child who's struggling with mental illness, um, it's especially scary because it's a very real. It's not like you're imagining, oh, God, you know, what if my son goes out tonight and doesn't come home. That's a very real possibility when you've had a suicidal child or a child suffering from depression or at high risk behavior. So you're not imagining those things. And, and you, you know, you either go crazy like, oh, my God, how am I going to live thinking my child might die? or you have to find a way to cope with it. And for me, that was around the age when Dustin was around 17 when it finally dawned on me, you know, I can do this, this, and this, and this, but it might not be okay. So how do I live in a world where I know it's a very real possibility that my son will continue to be sick and maybe, yeah. You're a professional writer, but how did you manage to write the obituary? You know what, Costas, of all the things in my life, I 
and I remember it very vividly as we sit here now. Um, first of all, somebody had said to me something that day, oh, in the obituary, you don't have to do this, this, and this, and this. And I'm like, the, even the word obituary just was, I was like, what did she just say to me? Like, obituary? Like, I have to. And of course, I did have to do it. And everybody had gone to bed. It was the second night, I guess. Uh, maybe the th I can't remember. And everybody had gone to bed. And um, I knew I had to do it. I had to do it for the next day. And I remember putting the dates down first and writing those dates. And I can probably tell you there was a couple of worse nights after that, but I don't even know. I don't even know to this day because it was like, you know, I can't unwrite this. And as a writer, everything can be rewritten, right? And it was like, nobody should have to ever write this, no mother. But it was like, no, not everything can be rewritten, you know? Date and of that birth was, and date of death. And it was just dates, yeah. And that's and that was it. Yeah, I, do, I don't know other than probably I could say to you, well, I wasn't there. Sherry wasn't there because if Sherry was there, Sherry couldn't have done it. But something, you know, was like, okay, you you have to do it. It's a very out-of-body experience, I would say. I experience that a lot in, the, in in shock and trauma. They know for sure there's trauma brain, there's shock brain. When you're in that state of shock, so much is happening inside your brain. You're, it's almost like your brain is flipped inside out. And yet, you have a task to do, and you know that you're the one who has to do it. Looking back at that, I wish I had a said in his unexpected death, but because I said sudden death, everybody jumped to one conclusion. And but it was, it was very unexpected. So it took eight months for the coroner's yeah. office to yeah. tell you that Dustin had died of yeah. pneumonia. Yeah. What were the consequences of that long wait? I mean, you, you just alluded to them. Yeah. Well, the, the thing is, is that I think sometimes when someone dies and there's a shock and it's sudden, but you know what it is, then, you know, you're starting right away to gather the bits of yourself and, okay, you know, if it had been an accident on the highway and what happened, you, you are going to go back and try to reimagine those last hours or minutes of this person's life, no matter what I think. Um, you know, I, I held my father's hand as he died, you know, and it was a very peaceful death. I was sat with Jill's father's as he died. Um, it's your husband's father. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, But not knowing how, you know, there was a death and it happened fast, but not knowing exactly how, for me, that just added to the agony. It was like, was it suicide? I don't think so, because I know he wanted to live. I know how hard he was trying. Was it a drug overdose? He had relapsed. You know, that could be a very real possibility. At the time, somebody was talking about, you know, there was another carfentanil scare. That was, you know, planted in my head um, until I got the results. I mean, that was always there, Costas. It was just always there. How can I tell you? It's like, how, 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 you know, how, how, how. And then you kind of go, I have to, I have to go through my day today. I have to function. I have to do how, how, how. And it was there. And it was, it was a really, really agonizing thing to not know. So again, it's not all about me. People go through this all the time. Then you realize things like all these people whose children didn't come home from the war, who never got to bury their dead, who that like you, you're in that space. It's it, as much as it's so insular and you're so in your own head, it's not really just your own pain, your suffering. You're thinking about all the parents who are waiting to get the autopsy reports. You're thinking about all the people who never got to bury their kids. You're thinking of all the people who think about their kid dying alone. I mean, and I don't think I'm different, Costas, than anybody else. You are in your own pain, but then all of a sudden you have a window in to the horror and the sadness and the pain of other people. And and you don't carry that alone. So when I did find out, as much as I was relieved that it was pneumonia, it wasn't like I was off the hook, if you know what I mean, because I knew so many people who weren't going to get 
that answer, who are going to go, yes, it was an overdose. Yes, it was an accidental uh, suicide, you know, or it was suicide. And so I was off. I was able to think, well, it was peaceful for him. I mean, she did tell me, she's like, he went to sleep and he didn't wake up. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what she told me. And I'm just, that's where I'm going. I'll never go anywhere else with that. But the writing of this book comes from a tradition of a long, long line of tradition of lament. Uh, C.S. Lewis, when his wife died, he wrote about the agony and the pain and he didn't talk about it. He didn't, you know, he didn't pretty it up. Now, I know I don't have a towering intellect like C.S. Lewis, but I have a pretty good brain (laughs) and I am a pretty well-read person and I am, you know, I have I've read, you know, for years about, you know, trying to accept the unacceptable. I took a philosophy major, you know, like when I decided to write this book, I thought I'm not going to write from the perspective of like, oh, 10 years and then I went through and I lost a son. That's not my story. The only way I could see my way through this was to write from what they call from the wound. And again, uh, Lament for a Son is a book by Nicholas Wolsterstoff, who lost a son in a mounting engineering accident. And uh, again, somebody came to the bookstore. They put that book in my hand. Other people come and said, maybe this will speak to you, Sherry, maybe not. And I go, yeah, no, no, I'm going to read Mary Oliver's poetry today, or I'm going to listen to a piece of music. But this book, Lament for a Son, a father lamenting for a son. And again, he didn't shy away from the pain. And for some reason... That helped me more than anything else because I was in it. I was feeling crazy. I was feeling having my experiences. And then I was reading about, now you'll experience anger. (laughs) That's not what I needed. I needed to open up that book and have this father raging on the page, rage on the page. And I, so I guess the decision to make this book, there were two decisions actually. Um, One is, can I do it? And Deanne Fitzpatrick put the pen in my hand and said, right, I want to know how you're feeling. The other one was, can I let go totally with my ego and not say to people, actually, I'm a really well-read person. And I, I, this comes from the tradition of Percy Best Shelley. And I, no, can I just let it out? At the same time, not scribble on the page, not just on the page. I want to shape it. I want to sculpt it. I want to sort it. I want to tune it. I want it to have a rhythm that echoes this experience that I'm in. And if it speaks to one person the way those two other books talk to me, then it's going to be worth it. And I think Costas, like Elaine Padgel, who's a great Harvard theologian, and she's written a lot, and she lost a son and a husband within like two years of each other. And she's, again, a Harvard-educated professor, and she had written very theoretically and academically and intellectually about, you know, grief and loss and God and all that stuff. And then she decided to write a personal book. And in that personal book, you know, what she talked about is, you know, we don't find meaning in a child's death, but we can create meaning. And to me, that, and as well, the real K poem, you know, let this darkness be, and you're the bell, and what batters you becomes your strength. So I got so much comfort and encouragement from the words of people who had come before who were poets or professors or whatever, who were, you know, intellectuals who did pour their heart onto the page and lived through it, you know, and were able to do it. So it was important for me to find that way. And someone else who wrote something very important, your mother. My mother, yeah. And that's where I went to. I thought, as opposed to all those other people's words who gave me any kind of comfort, in the end, I mean, this book, it's, it's, it, the title is You Won't Always Be This Sad. My mother lost my brother. Her mother lost a son. And when I went home that day and saw that note that mom had written to herself, she tucked it in the bathroom mirror. I was washing my hands. I was like, oh, what's that say? You won't always be this sad. It was like a month after my brother died. And I just, 
I went to the kitchen. I said, oh, mom, I, I just read your note. You're so brave. Like you, you, you. She said, Sherry, if I didn't put that there, I couldn't make it through the day. And I just, you know, I, I remember it broke my heart, but I remember thinking how brave my mother was. And the weird thing is, Costas, is that my mom and dad for years had facilitated, I mean, they were Anglican, very, you know, traditional Christian, and they facilitated a group at their Anglican church called Grief Share, and where people, and some of them who had, like, lost people 20, 25, 30 years before, but had never actually dealt with their grief, were coming in and going through this process 20 years later. So I had learned from mom and dad facilitating this grief share group that if you don't face your grief at the time, if you don't kind of do the sorrow at the time, then it's going to it's gonna, it's gonna catch up to you. It's going to come up and bite you in the butt. <laughs> you know, sooner or later, you're going to have to deal with your sorrow. You can't really put a lid on it forever. So mom had actually strategies as a result of facilitating that group, right? And and one of the things was, you know, put little things around that will remind you that that this too will pass. That So what she said to me that day, she goes, you know, I, I just know that the pain will get softer. The pain will always be there. And of course, when Dustin died, um, that's, you know, she was there for me. And because she had gone before me, she'd lost her brother. She'd lost my father. She'd lost my brother. She'd lost her sister. She'd lost so many friends. And I saw what a strong and resilient woman she was because I been in the North Costas with and worked with Inuit women, one of them, Marie, years ago, who had said to me, Sherry, you know, I lost three children, you know, two by hanging, one by gun. And when you've looked in the eyes of a woman who has experienced that kind of loss, I remember coming home that time and saying to Jill, no matter how bad it gets for me, you have to just remind me to say Marie, 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 because I will remember there's a woman right now in this life who's lost three children. And it does lift you out of your own, like, self-absorbed pit of hell because you you know it could be worse you, you know that but mom as my mother was able to say that to me and it it because what it does cost is you won't always be this sad first of all it acknowledges the sadness it doesn't say oh you know it'll be better no it's like you're in you know you're sad I get it but you won't always be this sad I mean, that's why at the end of the book, it's like, yeah, yeah, I'll be sad. I will be a different kind of sad, and but I'll also be happy and joyful, and I'll regather pits of myself, and I'll be whole again in a new way because I saw my mom do that. And uh, you do change, but, I mean, people change every day too, right? So, yeah, but my mother's words of wisdom, yeah, they got me through. One thing you've done is to follow the practice of walking a labyrinth mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. built on your property. Uh, tell us what part that plays in healing. Well, when I was in Washington, and this is the flip side of Sherry that people don't know about, because I am actually very interested in study in theology and philosophy, I did do a lot of theological studies there. And I lived 10 minutes from the Washington National Cathedral, and they had a labyrinth walk every Tuesday night. And so I started doing it, and I loved it. I mean, the joke is, is the first time I walked it, I took my shoes off. You're supposed to walk it in your socks, and I had a hole in my top. Socks. <laughs> and I mean, everybody puts their head down. I thought everybody coming towards me walking this labyrinth can see that I've got, I, how holy am I, right? It's like yeah. a bad pun. But anyway, so I, but I loved the practice. It was like, I'd taken meditation in the Shambhala tradition, but this was like a walking meditation, only it was with a design. And people sometimes get confused about the difference between labyrinths and maze. Labyrinths, you see there's one path, and the path is to the center. You know where you're going. You can't get lost. But there's a lot of twists and turns, and you, you can get very disoriented if you you know, are really focused, though. You just keep traveling that path. And so the way of the labyrinth, it's three hours. You release walking in. You receive in the center, and you return and to the real world. And so... Um, 
that practice, I felt, was just a really good grounding practice. I mean, I've got a monkey mind. I've got a, a busy mind. And, you know, I've been doing meditation for 28 years. We always joke about what would I be like if we didn't do meditation. I mean, that would be really scary. But um, And so I loved it. And I also actually, I actually studied under uh, an Episcopalian minister when I was there. And I took part in healing ministry every, well, I did it for about two years. But I wasn't going to come home to the Maritimes and hang up a shingle and go, oh, I do healing prayer with people. Um, I think we are all each other's healers. But I, I had gotten so much from that as a mother of somebody who was mentally ill. I couldn't I couldn't cure Dustin, but I could at least pray for him and I could have other people pray for him. And by praying, I mean hope. I mean beaming positive. I mean keeping a, you know, a dome of somehow protection around him, whatever that is. But it, it gives you a way to at least accept that you are powerless when it comes to helping your child. So I'd forgotten, though, when I came home from Washington, you know, life goes on and you do your thing. And I'd forgotten the power of that labyrinth walk until about two weeks after Dustin died in the middle of the night. It was like labyrinth. And I was like, labyrinth. I was like, oh, okay. What, what, what's, what's going on in my brain right now? And then I realized that Dustin was a landscaper, so basic. He's, I used to say he was a landscaper. He'd go, Mom, I mow, okay? I mow. <laughs> in the summer, I mow. In the winter, I, I do the snowplow. I'm not really a landscaper. Yes, you are your landscaper. No, I was but so he, proud he of him. He did some landscaping he did, around and he got Maple, really good Maple's at it. He, uh, he, bookshop he sure and dreamery. Did. He sure did, and he got really good at it, and he started to really like it, too. I think by the time he, you know, he, he did, he had his own little landscaping company and called it that. And, you know, I think he was proud of the work that he did that way, too. So but he um, I just knew that this would be a really good way if Shill would build it. Jordan found the spot for it. And if Shill would build it, um, then I if I could walk it, it would just be a good way to journey through my grief. And honest to goodness, Costas, I mean, yeah, I light candles in the morning and say my prayers and say hi, Dustin, from these little angel candle holders he gave me when he was eight years old. But I also walk the labyrinth twice a day. And it's just a way of honoring the beginning of a day and the closing of a day. It's not that I'm there and Dustin's ashes are in the middle or anything weird like that. It's just a practice, a ritual in which I enter the day and leave the day in a way that I can accept the sadness that's in my life and also the loss. And so I also feel very close to him there. So that might not work for everyone. It works for me. And Jill was just, when I said it the next day, he's like, of course I'll do that. And, you know, I have to say, Costas, I mean, Jill is so amazing. Traditional labyrinths are either like seven rings or 11 rings. We just did a five ring one. And, you know, Jill designed it and he placed it rock by rock. So I can't help when I walk there and pass every rock that I feel like there's just so much love there because it was, I think Jill was very good for him in terms of his healing and his way of grieving Dustin was to build that. So yeah, it's a it's a great practice for anybody. I brought some school kids there. A couple of them had ADHD and the kid with the most ADHD was in the center forever and the teacher's like, what's he doing in there? I'm like, calming himself down. <laughs> Not a bad practice. Not a bad Not practice, a bad practice. Yeah. Anniversaries of a loved one's death mm-hmm. can be a real source yeah. of dread. Yeah. Uh, but nature just cycles around the season. Yeah. Nature has no emotions uh, with right. regard to you. How did the first spring without Dustin emerge for you? Yeah, it, you know, in a way, sometimes I thought both my dad and my brother and Dustin all died uh, February, March, right? Both, And so you're in such grief, but then the spring is there. 
and it's coming. And so I always think they did a little favor for us by dying when they did because then the leaves came back on the tree and the sun came back out and the light changed. And I, I feel grateful that it was that time of year because, you know, when you go outside and all of a sudden you hear the birds singing again and you hear them like you've never heard them before, let me tell you, you think you've heard that bird for the first time. But that was a, you know, for me, nature has always been the place I find the most comfort, the most, I suppose, nature is my religion <laughs> in some ways. But um, it, it was a good thing that it was that time of year, I feel, because we, we had to go out into the sun. Now, what did happen, you mentioned anniversary. I thought I'd been through the worst, but I'll tell you when the worst was, was last January and February, right before the first anniversary. Really? Yeah, it was worse. It was, I'd gotten through the first, the first, the first birthday, the first Christmas, and then came back from Quebec after Christmas and saw that calendar coming up, and I just went to the to the darkest place that I'd been. And I think it's because I'd been, I was probably remembering what it was like for him at that time, the year before, and how much was happening for him. And I don't know, but it was it was very hard. And so that's why I say to people, you know, it's not just those first few weeks. It's, you know, thank goodness you have friends who remember that. You have friends who kind of, how you doing? How you doing? How's it going? They don't. They know it's not just the first few weeks. They know that that that's a, a process, right? So, um, what what I did though, Costas, and again, I don't mind sharing this. This is maybe like my mom's doing grief share. Maybe this book is like grief share because already I've had people writing me their stories, and it doesn't hurt me. I go, you know, we're in this together. If this book makes you feel better, that's great. This is what I was supposed to do then. But um, I I I was so upset that. I just Googled. I just went Nova Scotia Retreat Center and up popped Seton Spirituality Center in Terrence Bay. And they were having an individual retreat the next week. And I'm like, I think this is, I'm so going. So I went and I, it was the only thing I hadn't done in a year. I mean, Jill was always with me. We'd opened up Mabel Murples the summer before. I don't remember much about that year, but people were like medicine. I got to hold babies. But what I hadn't done in a year since he had died is to be by myself, totally alone with that grief. And as long as Jill was there, I didn't want him to see. I kind of like I'd wait till he go to the barn <laughs> and I go up the dirt road and I do the worst of my howling there. But I needed, I knew I needed to be alone, me, myself, and I, and whatever spirit in the wind I would be dealing with. And so I went to, to the retreat house. It was four days. They gave me my lunches and, and my suppers. I went to my room. I slept, I think, the first. 24 hours solid and then I walked and I I call it pray I you know I I walked and walked and walked and I cried and cried and cried and I I was with myself and I I went again in October I thought I'm going to have to prepare for this book coming out and I'll I'll go again and I think for me in my life um it will always be necessary to drop right out of the world and go be by myself in a place where there's no laundry to do there's not a phone call you you, you turn all your devices off and just walk towards the pain as opposed to running away from it because the more you run away from it the more it's going to follow you and it's not an easy thing to do but I'm grateful that I found that place and they were so wonderful and I'm you know my mom was Catholic and my grandmother was Catholic I was raised Anglican I call myself a Bushian because I like <laughs> I like Buddhist philosophy but I I really love Mary and Mary uh, is just I always have I've always loved pictures of Madonna, mothers and children right I've always loved the the image of Madonna and it's got nothing to do with Catholicism or anything it's just mother child and and of course and also the Pietà 
That's she's right. Holding That's right. Her dead son. She's holding her dead son, and all those images holding the the baby alive, the Pieta. I mean, it, they just. But but Costas, this really happened. Those first five minutes. And I don't know, to this day, I can sit across from you and say, I can, I can tell you this. I went outside. I don't remember going outside, but I remember going. But then I ran in the house, and I ran into the spare bedroom, and I yanked open a drawer, and I reached in, and it was Jill's mother's rosary. I don't even think I knew that rosary was there, Costas. It wasn't like, oh, run in the house and open the drawer. and get. I don't know. I, I just did it. And it was a little piece of rosary that his sister had made sure all the kids had a piece of a rosary. And, of course, I remember my grandmother with her rosary. And, I mean, that, yep, that rosary is in that purse right over there. And, again, it, it gives me comfort to think of other mothers who have. And my grandmother was there and Jill's mother was there, I think, in those first 10 minutes. And I can't describe that any other way except to tell you that's my experience and that's what I believe. And they're never very far away. And so... The practice of, you know, having uh, prayer beads in my hands, whether the Buddhist prayer beads that people have given me, Anglican prayer beads people have given me. Um, I got one at St. Anne de Beaupre the last time I was there. Um, again, like walking the labyrinth, it's a ritual that gives me comfort. And I keep saying to people, whatever gets you through, you know, barring like don't drink too much gin and stay drunk on the couch too long. Like, <laughs> I'm not saying that I did that any night. <laughs> <laughs> Did I just say that? Cut it out. <laughs> but you know what? There are there are comforting rituals that help us process a sorrow that we never thought we could process. And I think everybody has to find those rituals for themselves, healthy ones, hopefully. Sherry, thank you so much for coming in and sharing this with us. Thank you for um, asking questions about a book that I wish I hadn't written, but that I know that I had to. I feel absolutely that I was supposed to write this book, and I hope goes into the world and reaches those who it can reach. Including those parents who don't want to think about the possible terrible things that could happen to their children. Well, maybe. I don't know. I don't want to hurt anybody. You know, remember, I'm the one who did Mabel Murple's House was Purple's House was Mabel's Hair, and I just want to make people happy. That was my intention when I started to write. This is a book that I know will hurt when you read it. and I And so... I guess what's wonderful about a book, though, Costas, is that, you know, if somebody picks it up and goes, oh, I'm not going there, they can close it and they can put it on the shelf and they might not ever have to open it again. And I'm fine with that. I get it. I might not have ever opened this book if I wouldn't have had to. But it's not just about a loss of a child. It's about grief. And the more specific you are, the more personal you are, I think the more universal um, it should be, even though, yeah, not everybody had a Dustin and not everybody had a child. It's about becoming undone and unraveled in a state of shock and trying to regather yourself. And I think that is actually the process, hopefully, for everyone. Sherry, thanks so much. Okay, thank you. Sherry Fitch is the author of You Won't Always Be This Sad. It's published by Nimbus. To hear any or all of the conversations I've had with people who create books in Atlantic Canada, go to bookmepodcast.ca. Whenever a new interview is posted, we send an alert on the Book Me Podcast Instagram account. And spread the word to friends, family, book club pals, everyone you know who's a reader. We'd also like you to rate or review our podcast on your favorite download site. If you'd like to comment on a podcast, like today's with Sherry, our email address is info at bookmepodcast.ca. That's info at bookmepodcast.ca. Book Me is sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. Thanks to the Halifax Central Library for the use of its studio. 
Our producer is Robin Grant, and Lynn Fox is our recording engineer. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Now, let's go read. <laughs>